Welcome in. It's another edition of 10,000 Pitches, a podcast devoted to everything Minnesota soccer and beyond. What is up? Jeremy Rushing here with you as always. And uh, thank you so much. We're in episode 22 now. If you've listened to all 22 episodes or if this is your first time giving 10K a try, uh, we appreciate you uh, lending us your ears. Big show, packed show today, actually. A little bit later on, I'll be bringing in regular contributor to the show, Ethan Brandt, and we'll be uh, recapping season one of Sunderland Till I Die, the Netflix documentary on the English soccer club, Sunderland. No Minnesota United matches this week, so uh, a lot of time for us to go back and actually rewatch season one. So we want to do a little bit something different than we normally do. Instead of just talking about soccer that's happening, we wanted to talk about more like other soccer content that's out there. Documentaries are obviously big right now in all sports, but soccer specifically. So if you've seen it and you have some thoughts to share, I'll definitely do that on Twitter. Um, if it's something that's going to get you to watch it, you know, that's awesome too. However you want to take that. Also, I'm going to air my interview with Noah Billingsley. I spoke to him earlier this week for a piece with zonecoverage.com about his roller coaster of a year. His year started with uh, a health scare. Um, it was, it started with being drafted by Minnesota United, obviously. And then he had a health scare in preseason that kept him out of most of the first week of training. Then he was able to get back on the pitch and he broke the loons fitness test record, which is pretty cool. Then Lack of playing time led to him losing a lot of his fitness, which is a huge part of his game and a lot of what he relies on to be successful out on the pitch. So he lost a lot of that, obviously concerning when that's the main part of your game. Uh, But his loan to the Las Vegas Lights in the USL provide an opportunity for him to get it back. And he's pleased with how that went for him. So uh, talking a lot about that, along with his upbringing in New Zealand, with them being one of the first to control the coronavirus pandemic, we talk about, you know, the prospects of him heading back home after the season's over, if he'll be able to do so, what hoops he'll have to jump through to be able to do that and and, uh, all that. So very interesting conversation with Noah uh, coming up a little bit later on in the show, along with our Sunderland Till I Die season one recap with Ethan Brand. But first, a a few Minnesota United storylines that I want to touch on. Obviously, the big one being they've now had to postpone two matches this week due to COVID-19. Saturday versus FC Dallas was postponed after multiple United players tested positive. And then Wednesday, the game against Chicago Fire was postponed an hour before kickoff due to, quote, suspected COVID-19 cases. So now... This leaves two games that need to be rescheduled for the Loons in an already jam-packed schedule between now and Decision Day, November 8th. And uh, per the reporting from Paul Tenorio and Sam Stagecole at The Athletic, there have been rumblings that MLS is discussing postponing the start of the playoffs to give more of a buffer to make up games between the end of the regular season and the start of the playoffs. Um, this would allow, this would also be big because it would allow players leaving on international duty a better chance to make it back in time to compete in the opening rounds of the playoffs. Uh, specifically, the players competing in Europe in the UEFA Nations League, their, their Euro qualification system that they have there. Uh, guys like Jan Gregus, for example. Um, he is you know, done with that first round of international duty. He'll be back and ready to go in 10 days or so after he completes his quarantine, after he comes back. But then he has to go right back in mid-November because that's when the next round of the Nation, Nations League happens. And if, if he does that in the start of the playoffs, you know, that timeline stands pat. If the Loons make the playoffs, he is going to miss at least their first playoff match. So that is, that, that's big, obviously, and that really hurts teams when it comes to not having some of your most key pieces come playoff time 
not due to injury, not due to COVID, but due to the fact that they had to go on international duty. Uh, that's frustrating, obviously, for Adrian Heath, the coaching staff, and, and you know, the Loons aren't obviously the only team going through this right now. But still, it's, it's, the timeline is not convenient right now. So not only would postponing the start of the playoffs give you know, a chance to make up some missed games, not only looking at Minnesota United, but Colorado, who's missed seven games. They've had seven games postponed right now, have the Colorado Rapids due to COVID-19 implications. So uh, it'll definitely give, give, give that buffer for more games to be made up, but also for a chance for players to come back on international duty. And Minnesota United would probably need that to happen if they want a chance at making up these postponed games. The other side of that, the other option would be these teams that have missed games, you know, not reschedule them. They'll fall short and they'll rank the playoffs and seed the playoffs on a points per game structure. For a team like Colorado, who's missed seven games, you know, make up as many as you can and maybe utilize that. But Minnesota United only missing two, a more a bigger buffer between the regular season and the playoffs seems like the best scenario for me, you know, for the team to make up those games, have the same amount of games, same amount of potential points, and then rank the rank the uh, playoffs. You know, obviously that way, see the playoffs that way. What I don't think should happen this year, and I agree with a lot of what I'm seeing on Twitter about this. I don't really know if it's fair to give out a supporter shield this year because so many teams have postponed games. There will be scenarios, whether we have a longer buffer between the regular season and the playoffs or not, not every team is going to get the opportunity to play the full slate of games. And if you have a situation where you have multiple teams at the top that aren't playing the same amount of games, I really don't know how you can give out a supporter shield based on points per game. It just seems like with, with, with all that's happening this year and this year being so different, it seems like the best thing to do to maybe just plan on not giving out the supporter shield this year and just go with, okay, we had the MLS's back tournament. Obviously you get a trophy for that. You know, you get the, you get the automatic bid to the CONCACAF champions league in 2021. And then your other trophy is the MLS cup, you know, no supporter shield, no U S open cup, given how crazy and, and, uh, you know, just weird this year has been, that might be the best way to go about it. Uh, that's what I, that's what I think is the best way, best thing to do. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. It's a trophy. It's, it's nice to have. It really has no implications as far as championships go, but uh, just kind of a little aside there. Um, as of now though, the plan is for the loons to resume their schedule Sunday at home against Houston Dynamo. If the game does happen, it'll be the third time this season. They've tangled with former loons, Darwin Quintero and Christian Ramirez. And as of now, no official comment has been made by Minnesota United on these postponed matches or on uh, Wednesday's postponed match, uh, specifically at the time of this recording on Thursday afternoon, no official statements or, um, or comments from the team themselves on the postponement and, and, and implications for, for what the schedule looks like in the near future. But uh, we'll be keeping track of that. And if you follow me at Jeremy G rushing on Twitter, um, I'll be passing along that info when I receive it, whether it's, it's privately or whether it's, it's public knowledge. Another big Minnesota United story is they got 75 K from the New York Red Bulls and uh, 75 K in general allocation money. I should specify from the New York Red Bulls for the rights to Medina native Caden Clark. Now, if that name sounds familiar, this is somebody who has been making huge noise with RBNY2 in the USL. And because Minnesota United 
held his MLS rights, the Red Bulls could not promote him to their senior MLS team until they acquired those rights. And the way MLS is set up, you know, since Caden Clark was born in Minnesota, kind of Minnesota United is entitled to those rights, basically. So that's why New York Red Bulls had to pay Minnesota United to get those rights to Caden Clark. Uh, so now Clark, 17 years old, has played in two matches since his call-up. Two goals and two man-of-the-match awards. This kid's 17. He had a banger on Wednesday night uh, against Toronto. Just an absolute stunner of a goal. And there's a clause in his contract with the Red Bulls that will automatically send him to Bundesliga side RB Leipzig in 2022. So when this kid's 19, he's 17 now, when he's 19, he is going to be playing in the Bundesliga for one of the best teams in the Bundesliga. You're looking at potentially the most successful Minnesota-born soccer player of all time in this kid. And for whatever reason you want to you look at, uh, Minnesota United was not able to obtain him uh, to their roster, which obviously is a huge loss. But it's going to be entertaining for us to just watch his ascension as this develops. If he continues to develop with New York over the next couple of years and becomes one of the best players in MLS and then moves to Bundesliga, I mean, you're talking about one of the more intriguing American soccer players of that moment coming from Minnesota. Pretty cool. Moving down to lower league headlines, Granite City tops Bateau FC 4-3. to three. Uh, The fighting Ethan Brantz, if you don't know, our, our regular contributor Ethan Brandt actually is a trialist for Bateau FC right now. And uh, good match. This was an opportunity for Bateau to see how they square up with a UPSL side because Bateau being at the grassroots level right now in the WPASL does have aspirations into moving into more of a semi-pro type uh, organization with a league like the UPSL or the NPSL. So this is a good measuring stick for them. Um, Great performance by Bateau FC. They lost four to three, but they were competitive. So I do think it kind of gave them the reassurance that they needed that, that that a move up wouldn't be a huge competitive leap for them in that regard. So obviously it's a small sample size. They'll, they'll still be in the WPASL for, for next year and they'll still be playing these friendlies. So uh, we'll get a bigger sample size as that moves forward, but a good start for Batoa FC in that regard, competing with Granite City, even though they did fall four to three last weekend. Um, speaking of last weekend, FC Minneapolis competed in a friendly with Rock City FC. They beat them two to one and the City Lions will take on Cedar Stars FC this Saturday at the Fern- Fernbrook Athletic Fields in Maple Grove. Minneapolis City uh, has their 2021 membership packages uh, open. If you want to get the tickets for yourself within that membership package, you can, you can do that. But they have something really cool, the out-of-town package. This is something Duluth FC has done. I talked with Duluth FC GM Tim Sass about this. Uh, that was way back, episode three or four, where I talked to Tim uh, about uh, how cool the out-of-town supporters package can be. Basically, you get all the bells and whistles that come with membership packages, but your tickets to the games are actually donated to a local youth organization. And it's only a $50 membership package. So definitely something to look into if you're interested in that. Um, if you're interested in supporting Minneapolis City, but maybe you, you're you know, not keen on getting tickets and don't think you can regularly go to games, you can do the out-of-town package, support the club, and get those tickets donated, like I said, to a lo- local youth organization. So very cool uh, thing that, that the Crows are doing there. Uh, Forward Madison came back from a 2-0 deficit to draw Fort Lauderdale CF 2-2 on 
Wednesday afternoon, a little matinee on Wednesday for the Mingos. Uh, Christian Diaz with the equalizer in the 85th minute. The Mingos currently sit seventh in the League One standings right now. Three games left to play, and their next game is Saturday in Chattanooga against the Red Wolves. You can find that on ESPN Plus if you have that subscription. Uh, noon is the uh, noon Central Time is the uh, is the kickoff time for that one. And finally, forward Madison E athlete Evan Warwick competed in the uh, Summer Series Finals for the Lower League E Cups Summer Series uh, last night or Wednesday night, I should say. Um, kind of a rapid fire final eight single elimination tournament in both the Xbox and the PS4 rounds to determine the summer series uh, champion. And Evan did lose in the first round of the summer series finals, but he lost to the eventual champion who was Chris Miranda from uh, VC fusion Academy. So a uh, good performance by Evan throughout the summer series to make that final eight bracket, but uh, losing to the eventual champion there. So, so nothing to be nothing to hang your head about. If you're, if you're Evan losing to the eventual champion and uh, we'll see what the future holds for uh, the, the EUSL, how, how that will uh, move forward, as well as the Lower League E-Cup uh, and, and their launching of the 2021 Lower League E-Cup here in January. Very excited to see what they're doing there. And now I have the great, great pleasure to welcome in Minnesota United defender, just coming off of his loan with the Las Vegas Lights in the USL, Noah Billingsley. Noah, thank you so, so much for taking some time to chat with me today. I know you're in the middle of your quarantine right now. Uh, Coach Adrian Heath mentioned that you may be able to do some sort of adjusted quarantine because you did unfortunately have COVID back in March, but that that might help you in terms of a shorter quarantine time this time around. Is that happening at all, or are you kind of abiding by the same standard? Um, I was honestly hoping the same thing, but I think I'm being being held to the same standard. Um, you know, it makes it easier on everyone if everyone does the same sort of same sort of thing. But, yeah, I'm not too sure if, if uh, me being able to do individual training, I'm not sure if that's because I've already had it or if other people are able to do that too. But, um, yeah, as I say, it'd be nice to be able to, you know, go back to my apartment and see all the boys, but uh, it could be a lot worse. So when you're loaned, especially domestically, how does that kind of work with communication back with your with your home club? Did you have constant communication with anybody on the Minnesota United coaching staff during your time there, or did they kind of just let you do your thing? What was that like? Um, it was a, a wee bit of both. Um, you know, when I first got there, everyone at Minnesota was, uh, you know, really good with um, communication and helping me fit in and, and all that kind of thing. And when I started to play in the games a lot more, um, Sean was really good. He, uh, you know, clipped some of the some of the plays from the games, and you know, was still able to coach me through the phone, and that was awesome. And I was, you know, in contact with with Ian Fuller, um, and even the, uh, you know, the, the trainers at Minnesota were able to, you know, message me, and I could always ask them, reach out with some questions, um, and all of that. So, no, they were great. Um, even talked to, you know, Mark Watson a few times. So I, I thought it would be a lot more, you know, you're on that team now, go and do you and we'll see you in a couple of months. But no, it was, uh, it was great. Obviously the loans, big opportunity to get minutes, consistent playing time as you kind of continue to develop. Uh, what'd you learn most about the pro game over the last couple of months that you may not have known before? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I think if, if it taught me anything, it, uh, it humbled me a lot. I think um, at the start of the year, coming from coming from college into you know the MLS setup, 
I was quite uh, shocked at how, you know, how many things they do for you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you get food twice a day and, you know, they'll clean your, your stuff and all of that. And I don't think necessarily I took it for granted, um, you know, as the months went on. But going back and see the USL setup, obviously it's a bit different. There's a lot less money over there and, and all of that. So I think it, it definitely um, reignited that fire to kind of keep me, you know, pushing for the top level. And where do you think your game benefited most from, from the loan? You know, did you improve a specific aspect of your game? Did you kind of build on, uh, you know, a strength of yours that you already had? You know, what specific part of your game do you feel like benefited most from having that consistent playing time? Yeah, well, I think a, a massive part of my game is sort of fitness and, and, and my running ability, which, which is quite funny because it's, it's mostly natural. But mm. um, when, after the quarantine and, and not playing for about six months, um, I went over there and I was quite – uh, quite shocked to, at how much I had lost, um, mm-hmm. which is something I never really, you know, would, would see happening. You know, I, I knew my touch would be off and, you know, I, I'd have to adjust to the game a little bit. But um, having lost so much fitness, I was a wee bit uh, worried because obviously I, I do rely on it a lot. So mm-hmm. um, for me, my main my main uh, focus over there was trying to get back that fitness um, and try and get back to where I was a little bit. And I, I think I did that and Vegas were awesome, gave me good game time and, you know, training and over that, uh, over that two, two month course. So, um, yeah, I was very thankful for that, but yeah, mostly just trying to get my fitness back. And now as you head back to Minnesota, it comes at a time where the team has piled up quite a few injuries um, and there could be a, you know, a, a spot for you to kind of slot in right away there on that back line. Uh, have you talked to the coaches at all about what your role is going to be now that you uh, are heading back to your home club and, and how do you expect that to kind of go? Yeah, no, I haven't, haven't had the, uh, the conversation just yet. Obviously I'm uh, pretty fresh off the plane, so yep. um, that might come in the next few days. Uh, but yeah, as I say, my main focus is still just trying to get back all that fitness and getting back to the level, uh, where I was. And if they, uh, if they need me to slot in, hopefully I'm able to do that. And if they don't, I'm just happy to, you know, help the team in any way I can. So I've heard a rumor that you, uh, broke some fitness records in the off season for Minnesota United. Give me the specifics on that. Uh, because that's, that's kind of a rumor that's floating around when it comes to your fitness. So, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I, um, I came in to Minnesota about late January, I think, and uh, I had to do my physical after everybody because just of, you know, the date and when I was able to get in. So I did my physical. It turned out I had a wee heart issue. Okay. Um, and so for the first couple of days of preseason, I wasn't able to train um, just while they were trying to figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I didn't get to do the fitness test with everybody. Um, fortunately, uh, the heart heart thing was, you know, no problem, and I uh, did the did the fitness test by myself one afternoon, um, which which was good because I knew what time I had to try and get, so mm-hmm. so it was uh, you know good for me. But yeah, ended up ended up uh, I think it was maybe fifteen twenty seconds ahead of the the record. So wow, that was a really good feeling because obviously coming in from college, you want to try and impress as many people as you can, and having the first two days off wasn't a, gr- a great look. So. You know, doing well on the fitness test was, was good. Do you know who held that record before you? 
Uh, I have no idea, but okay. it was probably even Finlay, honestly. Okay, yeah. And that, for days. that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, if you don't mind, let's talk about kind of your, your history and background a little bit. So, sure. uh, born and raised in New Zealand. Uh, was soccer always the main love sports-wise, or were you involved in any other, you know, the main sorts, uh, sports over there, you know, rugby or, or any of those sports, or was it always soccer? As a kid, I grew up with just my mom, and I had a bunch of energy. So she, she just threw me into any sport I could, could do, basically. So um, I was into, you know, basketball, rugby. I played tennis a bit, um, swimming, anything I could really do, but... Um, I, I fell in love quite early with, with running, um, and I really enjoyed running and I was quite good at it. And so my, you know, growing up until I was about maybe 13 or 14, my whole plan was to be a runner. Um, I, I was the, you know, national champ in New mm-hmm. Zealand for cross country for like four years in a row, yep. um, throughout middle school and all of that. So yeah, running was, was my original plan, but um soccer just took over and I, I fell in love with soccer and that's what I wanted to do and then when I was about 15 or 16 I had to pick between soccer and basketball to do um and yeah thank god I chose soccer because I don't think I'm big enough to play basketball so yeah so from that point on it was it was uh, all soccer now, when it comes to New Zealand and, and their youth development, when it comes to soccer, is that kind of a normal route, kind of similar to the American, where you, where you kind of play a majority of sports and then kind of funnel as you go? Or is there a, a large, de, you know, young developmental soccer presence in New Zealand? It's a good question. I think, um, I think similar to, to the U.S., at, at quite an early age, parents put their kids into soccer just because it's a lot less, you know, dangerous than mm-hmm. American football or rugby. Um, but uh, as I say, soccer and you know our two countries isn't isn't as big as the other sports. So mm-hmm. when kids start to get a bit older, they venture out to do, uh, other sports and and do other things. But um, I was fortunate enough to be part of an academy that had, had just opened up when I really started taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, that academy now has you know a bunch of, of players all over the world, including you know like, uh, PSV. Eindhoven and mm-hmm. in Holland and and all over the shop. So um, that was really really fortunate for me, just because if, if that academy wasn't there, I'm not sure I'd I'd be playing still. So um, yeah, soccer isn't isn't the biggest sport, but I think it's it's growing for sure. Yeah, similar to America here, which is kind of interesting. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. So speaking of which, you know, after starting college, you decided to make the move to UC Santa Barbara. Why America and why the college soccer route for you? Um, well, uh, my academy that I went to was, there was a few Americans that were running it. And mm-hmm. so, um, the whole premise of, of it was to get kids from New Zealand to, to, uh, colleges over in the U S and, you know, playing that if the kids wanted to go pro, that was, that was fine. But, you know, my mom, I'm an only child. So she wanted me to go to school and get a, uh, get a degree before I did anything else. So, um, yeah, fortunately for me, I was able to do both and go over to college, you know, play soccer and, and also get a degree. So that's why uh, that's why I wanted to go to college. I also don't think I was ready to go pro. So it was it was a good good time for me to kind of mature a little bit as well. So after starting your college career as a forward, you then made the move to the back line in your junior year. What went into that decision and how much of an adjustment was it for you? Yeah, well, 
it was a it was a weird time, honestly, because I'd never played defender in my life, and you know I was always a forward. So mm. when I wasn't scoring many goals, uh, the coach came up to me and he said, "Look, you, you're fit, you can run. Uh, we're going to put you at left wing back just for this game because we we need someone to fill in." And um, I said, uh, "What? Well, if I was scoring goals, I would have said." That's a stupid idea, but yeah. <laughs> I did really have a leg to stand on, so I just said, okay, yeah, sure. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it went quite well, and I quite enjoyed it. Um, and, yeah, from that point on, I, I played – it started at wing back and then sort of moved a little bit into fullback a little bit more. So, yeah, yeah from that point on, played defender. Obviously a good decision because that junior year was a huge breakout season for you. You know, all conference, all region, uh, you know, playing for New Zealand's national team is obviously huge. But but was it, you know, in college, specifically that junior season where you really started to feel like, all right, I'm on a pretty good track here to become like a long-term, you know, professional impact player in the sport? Yeah, definitely. I think the first – my first two seasons there, I was I was, I was, was very focused and in my head I, I still wanted to be a pro, but I think – once I got those awards a little bit, it was just a little bit of reassurance. Obviously, you know, mm. awards aren't everything in, in sport, but it was a little bit more reassurance that uh, I'm heading in the right path. And um, it was a bit a bit more rewarding than the, the first two seasons. So, yeah, it just made me push on. And senior year was really good for me as well. And the team did really well. Um, and, yeah, it was yeah probably the right decision from coach. During this time, you're also competing for the New Zealand national team of both the U20 and even uh, a few appearances at the senior level. Uh, take me through the first time you kind of got that call to compete for the national team. You know, how old were you? Was it just an invite to a camp or was it an actual call up? Just what was that overall experience like? Um, well, when I first got my, my call up, it was uh, for the U20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 17 and at the time I was... I wasn't really focusing on the national team because I'd never got any attention before. Um, mm. But my coach from the academy, he set me up to do a couple camps. Um, so I left home and, and stayed up in, in Auckland for a bit. Uh, and then was uh, driving with mum one day back in Wellington a month or two later and got the call from the head coach and told me that I'd made the World Cup team. Um, and so as a 17-year-old, I was over the moon, obviously. And that was great. Um, really happy for my mum as well because... You know, I was, wasn't the greatest kid ever, so, you know, it was <laughs> rewarding for her. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, from that point on, I I did the next U20s as well because I was, you know, young enough still. And um, and then I think it was 20, yeah, 2018, I was uh, called up to the full full squad, which was amazing. I played with uh, mm-hmm. Michael Boxer's brother, so that was, wow. that was funny. Um, and, yeah, got three caps as a, as a striker, so... Um, yeah, hopefully next time I get called up, it'll be as a right back. But yeah, it's very, very uh, rewarding when you get called up to the national team. I want to talk about your relationship with Michael in, ju- in just a minute. But but first, I did want to touch on, you know, your home country is kind of heralded as one of the first to sort of, you know, beat and get past this pandemic. Uh, but, you know, because of that, they're not really letting anyone, you know, in or out right now. Are you keeping track of the status of all that? And do you have any idea when you'll be able to get back to your home country, whether it be in the off season or later? Uh, yeah, I'm a... Uh... I'm keeping a very close eye on it. They, um, they've got a, quite a good process going on right now. We have to sort of, uh, it's almost like get an online coupon just to say that you can, mm-hmm. you can get into the country. And then uh, once you get into the country at the moment, you have to do a tw- uh, 12 day, 14 day quarantine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
mandatory. It doesn't matter if you have it or not. Uh, so if uh, if I was to go home at the end of the season, it, I would uh, have to quarantine for 14 days over there before I can see any family or friends. But um, I'm quite focused on finishing the season yeah. strong and then and then I'll figure all that stuff out afterwards. Would you kind of qualify for that for that coupon or, or whatever then for sure? Have you looked into that much to know that you'd be able to go to kind of go home if you yeah. wanted to? Okay. Yeah, I think so. It is quite tough. The travel relations between the US and New Zealand, I don't think, you know, are the best. Yeah. Obviously it's a massive distance and mm-hmm. money comes into it. But yeah, at the moment I do. So um yeah, keeping a close eye on that. So Michael Boxall, another Kiwi on the loons. Um, how has your relationship with him progressed since you were drafted? Have you kept in touch with him during your loan? Has he become like a mentor to you? Kind of how has that dynamic between you two move forward? Yeah, well, um, I obviously knew him before before coming. He he went to my college as well and was a you know a great player at my college. So the fact that I ended up on the same MLS team as him is is pretty crazy. But mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, coming in, coming into the team, it was it was very reassuring that he was already here. He uh, he doesn't speak a lot, but when he says something, people listen. And um, we uh, obviously we're you know different ages and all of that, but you know we get along really well. And um, he uh, he's reached out to me when I was on loan. You know, sent me a, a message and you know told me to keep my head up. So I think. You know, obviously I look up to him and um, he's someone that I think a lot of a lot of Kiwis that are, that are playing soccer should look up to. So final question here for you. And, um, you know, I, I like to, you know, other teams that aren't necessarily in MLS, I like to give them uh, some shout outs and maybe kind of try to get some people to go to their website and, and buy some stuff. So what's your favorite piece of Las Vegas Lights merch that you either received or came across <laughs> that somebody should go to their store and buy? <laughs> uh my favorite well our uh, our jerseys they were they were pretty pretty funny they had um a picture of a guy firing a confetti cannon right on the front <laughs> that's which awesome was, which, was, which was great yeah i got told i looked like a cupcake a couple of times that, but, um yeah it would have to be the, the home kit it was yeah it's fantastic all right i'll definitely go check that out <laughs> noah billingsley thank you so much for some time today i appreciate it Anytime. Thank right. you for me. We promised it last week, and now it's time to deliver. Ethan Brandt's here to help me uh, recap season one of Sunderland Till I Die. No Minnesota United this week, so if you had some time, uh, you had to, you did have some time to take our uh, recommendation from last week and uh, binge season one. So if you did, uh, you can recap right along with us here. Ethan, how you doing? Um, doing great, doing great. I uh, like you said, I uh, I rewatched at all i i meant to just skim through it but i ended up re-watching almost every episode in its entirety and you know it holds up well yeah so eight episodes season one and i guess brief overview here it gets pretty repetitive with a lot of losing uh the team was relegated two years in a row which is not not common and it's even more uncommon to have a netflix film crew there to document the entire thing. So I thought that was pretty interesting how, how that happened at the exact same time they, uh, they were filming a documentary. Yeah, it uh, kind of unlucky, I guess, in that sense. But, um, but yeah, so this documentary, it, uh, it's, a, it's a fly on the wall documentary. That's kind of the technical term. It follows Sunderland through their 2017-2018 season 
after being sent down to the EFL championship. Um, and then in season one, like you said, they ended up going down again to, uh, to League One. But um, you'll hear it referenced throughout the documentary. It is a big club. It, it's huge. They, they won six championships between 1892 and then the latest one coming in 1936. And you, they, they explore that a little bit in the documentary, just like how, how much of a dominant run they did have and how that really helped ingrain the team into, um, into the community mm-hmm. and made it as big of a deal as it was. It'd be like if the the Red Sox just had like a complete fall from grace here in the States, or, or I guess, I guess that's almost like the best comparison I can make, but like picture like a really big storied team just falling flat on their face and like being like relegated to the minor leagues. Like that's kind of what it's like. Yeah, it, um, it, it's absolutely insane. Obviously, like I didn't know that, like how big, how big of a deal they were, um, but yeah, no, the documentary definitely does a great job, like kind of exploring that. So the documentary, it opens up in a, like in a church, like there in the city. And, um, and I think that like the, it's such a great like um, example of how like ingrained in this t- team is into the community where like people are wearing the, the jerseys in church and they are, they're praying for the team, you know, in church. And that just kind of shows like, um, just the extent that this city and these fans really love the team. Yeah, and it's it, it not just in Sunderland's case. Like it really opens your eyes if you're really not aware, like of just how big soccer or, or football, if you want to call it that, in this case, is in England or in Europe in general. Like it is life to these people. It is bigger there than any sport is here in the United States. Like it is just, it's, in, it's, it's a way of life. It's not, it's almost like a religion, not a, not a sport. And Sunderland is like a prime example of that. Yeah. I think that's like a super like kind of cool concept that almost might never happen uh, here in like America, just because we have so many teams that, um, you know, like in any given city, right. You have, you know, however many teams compared Mm -hmm. to, you know, overseas where you, you really do only have kind of, you know, football or or soccer to, uh, to really latch on to. Yeah. And uh, like you said, so many different sports to put your fandom to here in America that it's really hard. I mean, obviously you can have your preference and you can have your team. And there are some fans here in America who are really only fans of one sport, but one sport doesn't dominate the American landscape like soccer does in Europe or England specifically. Yeah, it and that and that's one of the coolest parts about this. I think if because like you know, I I think living over here, it's hard to grasp how big of a deal that is. Um, but then you know, after that church scene closes in episode one, we get into the kind of like intro theme song, and it might be one of the worst things I have ever Terrible. seen. Terrible! Terrible! It's 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 a very high energy type show. I mean, it's a sports documentary. So like most part, it's pretty upbeat, high energy. And then they cut away and they always, you know, obviously the beginning portion of a, of an episode is always like the lead into the rest. So they always go into the intro on kind of like an intense cliffhanger. And then it cuts to this super mellow, almost depressing, just it's, it doesn't fit. It doesn't match. It's like a jarring 
uh, cut to the intro in every single episode to the point where I'm like, I'm like dreading the intro coming because I, it's terrible. And like, and that's like, the song is bad. Like I didn't look it up. Maybe it means something to somebody, but I just, I just can't like, but then on top of that, they have this like weird, like CGI animation like going on in the background Mm -hmm. and it's like if you took like a 2004 like you know like like the 2004 best cgi you can find and like plugged it in that's what i felt like i was watching they tried to make it like westworld you ever watch westworld on hbo i have not no okay so that it's kind of along along those same lines but westworld does it very well (laughs) and that did not it was not done well with southern with uh sunderland till i die for sure it was it was bad it was bad but luckily enough we have the the netflix skip intro button thank goodness um for that but um so another you know large overarching concept that i think um, as fans of like sports, we often kind of, we, we kind of lose sight of, but was like very apparent in this is kind of when a team is doing bad, like who, like, where does the blame go? I think, mm-hmm. you know, in here, in this documentary, I think it was the front office, the manager and the players, like, mm-hmm. like the fans would, would pick, you know, one of those three. And I think the documentary tried to like, kind of paint one of those three um as like the quote-unquote villain or the reason for failure and i think that's like a super interesting concept that they explored yeah and you know soccer kind of does mimic american sports in the sense that like a lot of times the coach is the scapegoat for everything going on right i mean they they went through what three managers in in the course of of a lot of this so uh, in the season yeah exactly exactly three managers in the first season so and, and i think if you're a fan of soccer, you, you know that, like, coaches get sacked all the time. Like, you have to almost be like a Jose Mourinho where you just leave a club after one year and doing well and move on to another in order to, like, not get, like, fired. Because that's, like, the thing in soccer. Like, if you stay at a club too long, you will get fired at some point. Where I think in America, a lot of – sometimes coaches get more of a benefit of the doubt, uh, but not always. Coaches are usually the scapegoats, like I said, similar to, to in England. So it was, it was interesting to have, like, the front office point of view of that with this documentary. And, like, to be fair, like, it is a lot easier to replace a coach than it is to, you know, flip a roster and bring in, you know, a bunch of new players or – you know, make some trades or loans or what have you. Cause obviously that's like, takes a lot more time. It's a lot more expensive compared to a coach, right? You fire a guy and you bring in a new one, you know, within a week. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, then I think one thing that like, is like, obviously here in America, uh, like all, most of our sports are kind of defined by like a salary cap um, compared to, uh, you know, England where, a lot of it has to do with how much money is the owner willing to put into the team and then how is the front office able to manage that money? Yep. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's like a person. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, it's a lot, like you said, it's a lot different here in America where uh, owners of a team don't really have to make a lot of those types of decisions. That's why you have a GM. That's why you have a president of insert sports here operations. Like it's almost that a lot of that, that, responsibility is is delegated and 
it may be like that in the top end of, of soccer and the top end of the Premier League with the big six. But when you talk about a team like Sunderland, you really got, got to look at how, um, well, in season one, how out of touch the owner is, how kind of out of the process the owner is, how hands-off the owner is. And then when we get to talking about season two with Stuart Donald, like how hands-on that ownership group is. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to see the dynamics there. But yeah, you're right. Like the, the owners definitely are a little bit more, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, invested, directly invested in, in, in these clubs, uh, these soccer clubs than uh, they are here in America with sports. And, and like one thing that was pretty jarring to me, like the uh, like obviously uh, they were kind of they were like, I think in the middle of their season, kind of obviously doing pretty bad in like that bottom three zone. And their their owner just stopped like wanting to pay for the team. Yep. Like I forget exactly what episode that was, but that was just so jarring, you know. Yeah, that was that was not too late either. Um, you know, that was like episode five or six where they they said that they they weren't going to put uh, you know pump any more money into the team, and the team would really have to uh, just kind of use the money they had to make the team better, which you know oftentimes is is, is next to impossible uh, as we saw. And and I feel like as a fan, you like you probably you might not know that in the moment like you just see like a a transfer window go by and they don't sign any players and you're just upset that they did that but you don't see necessarily that behind the scenes look where the owner said I'm not going to pay you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and I thought that was such a cool perspective to have on the um on that and uh kind of segueing in here uh the fans like we said very passionate very ingrained very invested but um, it was extremely entertaining to watch them just like just cuss out players left, right, and center. And oh my gosh, yeah, leaving the, the 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 clips of the fans leaving the stadiums after the losses, whether it was on the road or at home, especially on the road. Like the fans just kept going to these games, like traveling on these buses to these games, and then there was always the same thing where they would leave and you was, you know, say shite about 47 times. And, uh, just like, it was, it was rough. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was like, it was rough, but like at the same time, I enjoyed that so much watching these fans just like unload onto like, onto this like poor camera crew, right? That, oh like, my gosh. The part ev- where they, they like, I don't know if they tackled the camera guy or just like, or like pushed down his camera or what, but that was like, whoa, like that, that was, we're not that messing was around so here. That, yeah. That like you, it goes black and you just hear some like muffled, like, I don't even know, like pushes. And then they just caught to like a cracked camera lens. Yeah. Like just a nutty, nutty scene. That was uh, mm-hmm. kind of entertaining. Um, yeah, and then, then they immediately cut to the guy in his house. A little bit, little bit more safer there. Right, right. <laughs> I, th- that was one thing I did enjoy. Like, that y- you kind of followed along with, like, I don't know, three to four fans that, um, like, just kind of each had their own life. Like, obviously, each had their own life, but, like, they always tied it back into the club. And I thought that was kind of cool. Like, and, like, the fans were all aged, all at different points in life, but, yep. like – they were all just like so invested in their own way. And I enjoyed that quite a bit. Yeah. It was really kind of a microcosm of like these people, these people's lives are built around this football club. Like that is insane. But to think about as an American, like I, I I consider myself a pretty passionate sports fan. I'm a Cardinals fan. I'm an Illini fan. Like I'm, I'm, you know, 
I'm a Minnesota United fan, obviously. So like I consider myself a pretty passionate sports fan. And yes, when they lose, whether it's, you know, it does like make me a little sad, but like it doesn't, it doesn't hit me nearly as hard. I feel like as a Sunderland loss or the result of a Sunderland match affects the lives and the livelihoods of the people in this town. Exactly. Like, I think like we've all had our irrational moments of like anger after a bad loss, like, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it be a playoff game, like what have you bad loss. Like we've all had those moments, you know, where we like, you know, game games over and you just like, you know, you slam a door or like you like you do something just stupid. And then like 15 minutes later, you're just like, wait, like what what, what was I so upset about? Mm -hmm. But um, you really saw with these fans just, yeah, how much they're like, daily life like was affected by uh the and how much they rolled the ups and downs of the team it's one of those things where i think the most interesting thing to me is like just financially how the town you know as far as bringing in people into the town and 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 how these businesses operate around the the stadium like a winning or a losing season affects like the businesses in the towns too and how many people spend money in that town and it's like it's really not just the passion of the fans but it's it's the financial I guess reliance that this town has on this team to perform well and stay in some sort of top flight of English football so they can continue to prosper as well yeah that is that is a great point and uh, something the documentary explored very well and was very cool to watch You know, I think another aspect that this documentary did a great job kind of talking about was the kind of like the behind the scenes off the pitch stuff. So like, obviously we talked about like the front office and the owner, but um, I think one thing this documentary did a pretty good job like covering was the, um, you know, kind of just the the daily training sessions that the, the team would go through, whether that be, you know, rehab for injured players. We saw kind of that. We saw, um, you know, full team training out on the pitch. That was awesome. And then like, we'd even see, you know, the team like eating together, you know what? And Mm -hmm. it's just those little things that we don't get to see every day. It's just like fans that uh, was really cool to to witness. Yeah. And, you know, it's really like a behind the scenes look at the relationships between the players too. I mean, you, you saw that like some players really didn't get along that well and some players were like best friends. So it's, it was interesting. And then of course you have the business aspect of it too, where, you know, these players are coming and going like the goalkeeper got the second string goalkeeper got, got, uh, transferred in the transfer window and then all of a sudden like no the the loan didn't go through so then he had to come back like not just the relationships between the players but like how being a a soccer player in England is not all sunshine and rainbows either like there's a lot of a lot of unknown and a lot of a lot of instability with with how their lives are and, and how their livelihoods are with you know they can be traded at any minute they could be cut at any moment like it's it's insane yeah that uh that that, yeah, it's a great way to put it. That like just instability, you know, you know, with you know teams and players like going up and down, and the money available and all that. It's all just so like can change at any minute. Um, I think one cool thing we saw was kind of like, or they kind of followed like some of the players that um, would start at like at the academy level and ult- ultimately move up to the first team, and that was you know kind of awesome to witness. And obviously like we haven't, we didn't get to see them when they were like 12 years old. And then, you know, now, now that they're on the first team, 
but we kind of got an idea of what that was like. Um, specifically, I think his name's Josh Maja, or I know his yeah. last name's like, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, and that was such a cool storyline that they followed where, you know, he goes from the academy to the first team. Yeah, and then he, he contributes right away. He scores a goal in, in one of his first few games. And then obviously we see in season two, and this is kind of spoiler alert if you haven't seen season two, that he becomes a much bigger uh, factor in the, in the club, uh, to say the least, there in season two. But yeah, it was kind of cool to see his emergence and see how they, you know, when, when Chris Coleman got, got hired, that was like his thing is he wanted to fill the team with players from the academy level and really kind of give these guys some run and see how they perform. Uh, and Maja was the guy to really take that opportunity and run with it. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, interestingly, this is like kind of another contrast you'll find like to, you know, uh, you know, America versus Britain and like kind of just the league difference. We're like here in America, right? Like if you're going to be kind of like, if you're going to be bad, you just kind of fully embrace it and you go ahead and tank. trade away. Your, yeah, you tank. Exactly. And you tank for, you know, that number one draft pick. But like that doesn't really work in England. There is no, there's no like, Zion Williams coming out of Duke that you know they can draft it's mm -hmm. you just need to you know develop players in your academy and try to hit on uh big signings you know and I think that's kind of honestly a better way to do sports uh you know uh, these competitive leagues like this but um I think that's kind of a, an interesting contrast yeah and it, it, they really showed it with like it's almost the opposite right like you need to win to stay up and to have the budget necessary to be able to develop these guys and to keep you know these guys in your academy in your academy and not move move them to another you know like you it's, it's the opposite where you can tank in america but in england to stay competitive you need to stay competitive you can't just tank one year like you need to keep yourself in in a, in a higher flight you need to keep yourself in good form because that's how you attract the players that are going to be necessary for you to turn turn things around and Sunderland obviously was not able to do that at least in the first season but I do think like interestingly it's like you know you see it with this documentary where like you know when stuff when stuff starts to go bad it just snowballs and you're oh, just going gosh. downhill yeah. and um so like at least here in America like you know something goes bad and you start snowballing downhill at least you have that draft pick to like kind of put you back up to kind of help with like a reset but like put butts back in seats right Sell jerseys like, exactly exactly like but like here like you see like it's such a so clear with the documentary like when you start going downhill it's like what do you do to like turn that around you know yeah and it, it, it obviously Sunderland didn't have the necessary things in place to be able to do that from the manager to the the ownership to the I don't know if you want to call the guy the GM uh, but, but the guy who was making the decisions on, tr on transfer deadline day and stuff, like it, it was just, it, to me, it was just a micro, like a, a spotlight on, on what can go wrong and how bad things can get, uh, if, especially for a big football club like Sunderland. Like how bad can things get? And then what do you need to do to turn that around? I feel like this documentary, like it doesn't show you how to turn it around because obviously they didn't turn it around. Um, yeah. And, uh, and like, it's kind of interesting in that way. We're like, you know, uh, every underdog movie like ever made always has like a great ending where the underdog triumphs, but like, you know, that's not the case in real life always. And sometimes the underdog ends up in the third league of Britain.
you know? After being just being relegated from the Premier League the year before. Exactly. But I guess that's kind of what makes this so great, you know, as a, as a documentary. Um, and just, just the, yeah, the difference in mindset, like, like the fans obviously never lost their passion and they kept going to the games and stuff like that. But the difference in mindset from the beginning to the end, like it's such a stark contrast where it's like at the beginning, they're like, darn, like we're out of the Premier League. We're down in the championship. This kind of sucks. And then at the end, they're like, we would give anything to stay in the championship and not get relegated to League One. Like, it was just like a threshold of like what would make them happy just kept getting lower and lower and lower as every single episode. Yeah, that was, yeah, yeah, that is like they, at the, I feel like the first episode, they all talked about like, yeah, we'll be back up in the Premier League after this year. Like, they said that so confidently at like almost every level, you know, fans front office players but yeah then by the end of the season they're sitting at the bottom of the table and you're just you just feel so bad and hopeless and um, not to be like spoiler alert but they're obviously they're still in league one like to this day <laughs> so yeah things obviously yeah, it, haven't gotten any better it is interesting because obviously it's like we're watching this in 2020 and it, it like i said it followed the 2017-18 season it is mm-hmm. kind of interesting seeing those like teams you know that were like in that league yeah but like, like leads they were playing leads right, um, right. And, playing, and now they're in the premier league they're playing aston villa they were playing fulham like yeah it's it's interesting uh they, they had just talked about like leads being like promoted from league one to the championship and in, in season one and then all of a sudden now obviously they're they're doing they're doing some things in the premier league so yeah it was really cool to kind of see indirectly see the ascent of some of these other clubs while sunderland is is going down the going down the tubes and let's hope, let's hope there's some production team following like leads around instead of. Oh, instead can of Sunderland. you imagine that? Like the exact opposite, right? Yeah, like what, Sunderland till I die is like so depressing from like a soccer fan standpoint. And if you had like the leads version of that like going on at the same time, where it's that would be kind of cool to see. Yeah, they, they whoever like the, or this production company, they just picked the wrong team. Like they just unlucky. They picked the wrong yeah. team. Well, I read where the the owner, the original owner, Ellis Short, commissioned the documentary because he wanted to attract investors, and it just completely backfired on him. Obviously, <laughs> I uh, in that same vein, I saw uh, season two. Like, uh, like they were not very keen, like the people within the organization, on filming that, especially the players, because they thought like this like this failure would be attributed to them throughout the rest of their careers which like i suppose is a pretty fair you know way to look at this right yep and they, and, they um, released it early they, they released season two when they did because of covid because of quarantine it'd be interesting to uh, like think about or like go back and try to find like when was the original timeline for them to release season two were they ever actually planning on releasing season two like that's i don't know the answers to those questions but i do know they released it early because of because of the quarantine yeah so yeah that is all kind of interesting um one thing that i kind of forgot to mention that like happened in like kind of episode one very early on they were showing that montage of um like back when the team was good right and um i remember seeing like the like like clips from 80s soccer and wow that just was that was just wild like the the kits were like just baggy like everyone had just a ton of hair huge shirts and really short shorts 
yes it was just a <laughs> wild thing to like to witness like yeah. it's so jarring compared to now um i guess like so neither of us are really you know like film like neither of us went to college for film but um i think it is important to comment on that i think like i said before it's kind of a a fly on the wall documentary if you will which is name implies as if it's just a fly like the camera crew is that quote-unquote fly um and i think that worked very well in this like context and um so one thing i think that was just well done throughout the doc was like the way the emotion and like we kind of touched on this but like the way the emotion was captured at like every level like I, like, obviously the fans, but, like, I think you saw it from the players. But I think kind of, like, what I also felt like I noticed was, like, like the front office workers. Like, I feel like as the season went on, like, they look just more, like, drained and exhausted. Yeah. And like you said, their expectation, expectations shifted so much. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that, like, obviously – when a sports organization just like any company does well it's gonna that that those good vibes are going to reverberate down to to everyone who works for the club and then obviously and then as we saw the the flip side of that is when the club is not doing well it hits everybody hard but you don't see the a lot of the employee like if you're a fan of a club fan of a team you don't see those employees so it's almost like an out of sight out of mind thing where you're not really thinking of them but in this documentary they did an excellent job as you said of of capturing that emotion and showing just how much the performance on the field can affect so many different people and so many different sections of of the club that aren't just involved in the on-field aspect exactly um and then in a similar vein i of like kind of like capturing like emotion i guess i think what they did a great job of doing is like they like almost every episode they would um highlight a game two or three you know um and within that like every game they showed they did a great job of like capturing the flow of the game with and like so you felt like you were like you knew what was going on like they for example like show like i for like lack of a better term like a like a like a sunderland highlight like almost a highlight reel if the if the team was up so like you wouldn't see the score but you would know that they were like they were winning yeah and and vice versa and like more often than not it was the the opposite of that where like they would show just like that like how just draining a game can be um and they would just capture that flow of the game so well without like you being able to see the score or or hear commentators in the background and I can only imagine how tough that was, how much tougher that was, considering every game was like a Groundhog Day situation, where like every game was just equally or, or more depressing than the last. Like finding ways to make each game seem different and unique and, and worth watching in the documentary, basically, even though they're losing every single game, like they did an excellent job of, of still pulling you in despite the results being terrible every single time. Like also I noticed there'd be like, like some of the B roll they would use of fans. Like it would, they'd use like the same, like one fan would be wearing the same thing sitting yep. in the same spot, 
but it would be for like two different games and you'd be like wait like wait a minute yeah. um and there was one where that that one striker that was on loan from um i forget who uh who who had the kind of the bigger beard and he he came back and scored the, a goal against them towards the end of the season do you know what i'm talking yeah. about yeah uh, i can't they, remember his name but but yeah he he played he ended up playing for aston villa they transferred yes. him over to Aston Villa in the transfer window, and he came back and scored against him. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but yeah. But he – I remember, like, they showed B-roll of him, and, like, he didn't have his beard, but then they showed, like, game film or, like, a clip from the game, and his beard was back. Like, that happened once. Like, so there's a couple of those, which, like, obviously don't really matter. They're just kind of funny when you notice them. Yeah. Um, but, um, but I – but overall, like we said, like – I thought it was filmed like just beautifully and like they had like some really great like overhead shots of like the city of training and like one thing that like really stood out to me was as you're watching this documentary you know all eight episodes I don't think they used like kind of that standard like overhead cam that you see while watching you know a a traditional broadcast. Yeah, they and never. I, uh, I mean, maybe for like kickoff for one or, one or two games, but yeah, you're right. They, they really did a good job of using their own footage and piecing that together with the broadcast sound. Like that was awesome. Yeah, it was it was so well done in that way, and I think like that that like documentaries like they can lose you kind of like when you feel like you're just watching like normal like broadcast footage, and um, they ne- I feel like that never happened here um however you never got like the uh like inside like the locker room you know right before a game or at halftime and um I read that was because the uh the managers uh specifically Coleman never wanted that like he he said that was off limits for the film crew which I do think as we saw with like the Totten doc it um it works well it's kind of cool to see that like in the mind of a coach in Mm -hmm. uh in a locker room yeah, and, and, you know, that's not something I even – honestly, it's not something I noticed um, until afterwards. Um, I think I was reading, like, a recap or review of it, and they mentioned that there was no locker room uh, footage really at all. And I, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, like, there wasn't. So it's not something I really noticed. But, yeah, it's definitely something that could have added a, a, another layer and another element to, to the doc for sure. Um, one, one thing, though, like, within, like, kind of that mindset of a manager that – you did like, despite not getting the locker room talk, you did get some manager like mindset talk. Yeah, um, I sure. felt like one thing that I heard a lot of the managers talk about, specifically Coleman, was like, you need your players to feel confident. And like, I heard the managers talk so much more about mindset than like actual soccer. And I thought that was very interesting. And like, I guess to be fair, they weren't like, none of the managers did a great job. But I thought that was interesting that like some of these these top managers like in the world, you know, who are, you know, managing these, you know, top of the line clubs are like really focused on players mindset versus, you know, like drilling in like specific soccer tactics into the players. Well, not to veer off and talk about another uh, Netflix documentary, but have you watched the Jose Mourinho episode of the, the coaches rules for life? I've not known. documentary. So it's really interesting. Um, he, he talks about his kind of uh, mindset as a coach. And he said like during his time coaching Real Madrid, he's like, I'm not going to teach 
Cristiano Ronaldo how to kick a free kick. Like, I'm not going to teach Zlatan Ibrahimovic how to finish in, in traffic in the box. Like, when you get to that point, now Sunderland maybe not be at that level. You can, you can argue that. But when you get to that point, like, you're not really teaching professional soccer players how to play soccer. Like it really is more about the mindset. It really is more about making sure that they are up and they are amped and they are focused on what they need to do in every game more so that they, they, they know how to do what they need to do. If that makes sense. Yeah, that, that, that is, yeah, that's well said. makes a ton of sense. And, um, and I, I think like kind of on a, on a micro level, you saw that with uh, their keeper, like they often talked about like the keepers more as like, he, he like they never said like oh this is a bad keeper a good keeper they just said he's playing you know confidently and then they brought in that striker towards kind of the end of the season that last transfer window who mm-hmm. like and they they just kept like they never said he was like a bad player or he was like you know doing this bad they just said he wasn't confident yeah. and I thought that was very interesting and very cool to kind of see that like because I feel like you know for us like fans and like you know at like lower level it's like oh, he's a bad player. You know, we don't focus on, oh, he's just, he's not confident right now. Yeah, like his mindset isn't where it needs to be. He's, you know, he's in his own head, blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah, you definitely hear that more uh, about soccer than you do with any other sport. Um, I guess the only other one that's kind of close is like baseball here in America. Like if a guy's in a slump, it's not because he can't hit a baseball. It's because his mind just is not right and it's not in it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so to loop back around here, we kind of went on a little tangent there of uh, that, but to loop back around into like kind of the filming of it, I think one thing we both like appreciated that we saw was like when it started to snow, like in England, which first of all, must be kind of rare there. It is. Which it I is. That's why they can play the, you know, their season through the winter, usually just like rains there in the winter. It doesn't really usually snow too much. Which makes a lot of sense, but I never thought about because obviously, like, I just picture like it being cold and snowing, which yeah, like similar to here, but right, like in but like in reality, makes no sense because they play through the winter. But anyways, there was a uh, it was kind of after the that uh, after Christmas they were um, it like snowed uh, just a ton, like a couple inches within like a couple hours, and uh, or a ton by their standards, maybe not ours, but um. And like everyone, you know, on the team in the, in the front office, the grounds crew, everyone came together and shoveled off the game pitch. So the team could train that afternoon. And like, first of all, like obviously a very heartwarming moment, but um, second of all, like once again, something you don't think about is like, you know, like how does the team, you know, train? And then we saw those like images of the, like basically, you know, like a, a scrimmage going on between them like on the game pitch, you know, with no fans. And I guess we're more accustomed to seeing that now. But like, that was such a cool sight, you know, cool visual that uh, they had in, included in there. I mean, the season itself was just like a pile on of depression. So it was really nice to at least have that moment of like, this is kind of heartwarming. This is kind of cool to see this team coming together like this. It made you feel good for a little while in a documentary that otherwise didn't have a, a lot of feel good moments. At least exactly. Exactly. And like, I just remember like in there, like one, like two players, like they went in for the ball, like kind of a hard tackle and like they fell onto a snow pile that was like immediately off to the side. And like, they just like smiled and like laughed it off. And that was like, like you said, it was just like, it felt good for an otherwise just like 
terrible feeling like you know 40 minute episode exactly and then they then they go on like and that's the thing like like it leads you to believe that like okay they're gonna turn a corner here like they're gonna they're they're coming together they're gonna start winning they're gonna get out of relegation and then like the next like three games they lose and it's like well okay <laughs> at least we had that exactly exactly like yeah there there was quite a few of those moments throughout the doc where you felt like the corner was being turned and then next thing you know like they lose three games you're just like ah this sucks but, so uh, the season yeah, they get they, they get in the relegation zone. What I thought was interesting is that they were they were so bad that they got relegated before the season was even over. So they still had like another game to play at the end of the year before the season ended, even though they were already relegated. They had already fired Chris Coleman. Like a lot of the the transition was already in place. And then in that last match, they end on the high note where they they throttle Wolves like 4-0. And that's another team like we were talking about, Ethan. You know, they won the championship that year. And obviously, they're, they're doing really well in the Premier League now. But, like, that was another one of those things where it's like, huh, Sunderland, this really bad team, you know, beats Wolves 4-0 in the last game of the season. That really doesn't mean anything. Like, that was just kind of a – it was an unexpected but kind of, I guess, uh, like, as we just mentioned, kind of a high note to end off of. Yeah, that was that was cool to see, and then um, and then you know following that they 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 showed all like the season ticket holders coming back to renew for the following year despite being you know sent down another league, and mm-hmm. once again just another like high note and uh, which was like I guess fun to see and it was you know cool to see that the support remains despite going down again. Yeah, and I think a lot of it had to do with just optimism that, like, uh, you know, a new ownership group, you know, new new manager, you know, whatever. Like, like they were really completely transitioning how their front office was going to operate. So I did think I do think a lot of that stemmed from the the encouragement that, like, okay, this is going to be what what turns it around for us. This is going to be what helps us. You know, we're not going to get relegated relegated three years in a row. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, so this will be what what turns it back around and. Uh, kind of playing off of something we talked about earlier, like what would Sunderland fans give right now to just be like a perennial championship team instead of, you know, really like, like reaching for the, the premier league branch. Like it's, it's insane how those, how those aspirations can change. Exactly. Like, yeah. Like one minute you, you think you're, you're just going to, you're going to be back in the premier league. And the next thing you know, you're three years straight in the bottom of yeah. league one or championship. So um, I guess, yeah, I guess that just shows like how, you know, quick things can change for a team. Uh, but, um, but yeah, to wrap it up here, um, I think in the last episode, they had like a great, a great quote from the, uh, from kind of the executive who I, who I guess got, you know, uh, fired once a new ownership came in. But um, he said something along the lines of when, when you're in it, like when you're in football, like you want out of football, but when you're out of football, you want in it. And I think that was like such a great kind of line to like kind of wrap this up and uh, such a great perspective for obviously for us fans who like always are like, oh yeah, like I could – I could probably manage a team. Like I could be part of that, you know, or like I could be a GM. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of a, it's like a life thing. Like the grass is always green on the other side type thing where like, you know, no matter where you, where you are, a lot of times our mindset is to get to another place. 
whether that's, you know, whatever it is, whatever walk of life that you're in. So, you know, even a guy who is at an executive of a English soccer club, you know, something that a lot of people in that country and a lot of people who, you know, soccer fans in general, a position that they would kill to have. But even then, like, it's super stressful. It's super draining. Like, not everybody can do it. And it really pushes you to your brink and to your limit, as we saw firsthand in the stock. And he was putting back those espressos all season long, like, like crazy. At least twice an episode, you'd see him head over to his espresso machine and, you know, pop another one in there. And, uh, And he still just looked exhausted constantly all the time like the bags under his eyes like the whole season like you just see them getting worse and worse and worse i it <laughs> like was... man like he's the guy i felt i think i felt most bad for him than anybody else because you just saw like he didn't have a lot to work with he was trying to do his best and he was just getting the brunt of all the all the criticism and all the blame and, and really bearing all the weight of everything that was happening and then, and then, like, walks out of that last game after they lose. And, like, somehow, like, that looked like an executive lot for, like, play, for, like you know, team personnel. And somehow fans were in the back there. And he gets these, like, just kind of, like, sarcastic comments as he's walking to his car. Like, oh, man. Like, what a poor guy. Poor and then, guy. He, then, he, then he told the fans to fuck off. Yeah, 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 I heard that. <laughs> or I don't know if that was him or if that was one of the other guys that was walking with him. I, I guess I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, make it seem like it was him if it wasn't. But like one of the guys in his kind of like entourage there that was getting in that car told the fan to fuck off. Yeah, that was, that, that was hilarious. I'm, and then the coach got, almost got into a fight him. with the fan too. We should talk about that. After, after the last game, I think the one that they like, like uh, I think it was the same game, the one that like kind of secured their relegation. Chris Coleman gets in like a shoving match with like a, a fan and it's just like, man, this, this is going off the rail. Like this is already off the rails, but like now it's like spilling out into the parking lot almost. I know that was, that was wild. That was one of those things that like, you never, like you just don't think you'd ever see, but like, yeah, then there it is. Um, mm-hmm. I get like, so yeah, I guess like overall great documentary. There were like a couple storylines that I think they like, you know didn't maybe explore enough um yeah i don't know if i took this to be a bigger deal than it was but who was the player that like was eating up so much of their their team's money and like wasn't even playing like i can't remember his name but that was only like explored through like half an episode just like leading into the transfer window where they where he didn't end up approving like a move or whatever or a loan or anything like that um, like, I feel like they definitely could have played into that a little bit more because that seemed to like play a huge factor as to why this team couldn't add key pieces that they needed. Yeah. Jack Rodwell. Yep. That was him. Yep. He, yeah. Like that, that was one of those storylines where like all next thing, you know, you're in, I wrote this down episode five and like, they're just like, Oh yeah, by the way, we have this player who's just eating up like a ton of our cap and he refuses to leave. Uh, so and refuses to play and like, yeah, he refused to play. He refused to leave. Like he's just sitting here collecting money. And like, yeah, that was one of those things where it's like, you don't feel like you got the whole story and like, we got a certain perspective on it. Like, what if we heard from him? Like what, like a little bit more, yeah. you know? So, um, they did kind of make him seem like kind of an asshole when he was like brushing off the camera to go like make a phone call and like stuff like that. So, um, 
obviously they can slant that any way they want, but uh, I don't know. I guess that's the only viewpoint we have. So yeah, but like I said, like that was based off half half an episode that he was featured in. Besides that, they never talked about him. Exactly. Um, and then, um, but beyond that, like I said, I thought they did a great job. I think like kind of the closing, you know, um, idea and like thought that I had was like they they really present this like um, this contrast of like sports is a business and you need to like win games and get results. And, you know, at at this point it is so corporate between agents and players trying to get money and ownership. But then you also on the, on the other side of things, you have this, like the, like this, this whole community that just rides the highs and the lows of this team. And like, they're a family and like, so community built in all this. And I feel like those two ideas don't necessarily like come together that well. And they don't let, and so like, I guess, how do you, you know, balance those and where is that balance? And can you achieve that? Like, you know, we are a corporate entity, but like, we also care about like our fans and. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I don't know in 2020, if, if you really, I mean, I think fans for the most part have come to peace with the fact that like our favorite team is a business. It's a corporation that's always going to do what's in their best interest. But I think sports is one of the rare industries where what's in the team's best interest is also going to be what's in the public's best interest in terms of like a fan base being happy and and all that stuff. So I do think that kind of aligns more in sports than it might in other industries, but you're right. I think, uh, you know, Sunderland obviously didn't strike that balance very well. Exactly. Yeah. I don't like, yeah, I don't know how to best like describe that idea of like trying to fit into the like corporate mold that, that is sports and and try to make your fans happy because like obviously i think what what would have been in sunderland's best interest ultimately is you know trading away a lot of your older players or you know sending them away and trying to get like a young nucleus in and using your academy and all and like kind of accepting like hey we're probably going down another league before we're we're gonna go okay kind of the two steps back uh, to take like or one step back two steps forward mentality yeah. but like it but obviously the fan base just would not have like wanted to see that happen where they ultimately do go down again and they get rid of all their better players but it is for the sake of you know three years from now we have like a, a strong core of players that want to be here and want to win mm-hmm. and it, it just seemed like it just seemed like the players weren't bought in to what they were doing. I mean, there was the scene uh, where they were doing like the, the supporters dinner or whatever. uh, And they were answering questions from the supporters and the supporters were like, the team's not trying on the field. Like they're not playing the hardest. And the, the manager in the front office, like, Oh no, no, they are, they are. And the, the supporters like, no, they're not. We see it. Like you can't fool us. Uh, so like, I just don't think, I think the ultimate downfall was, was they, they didn't bring, they didn't bring in somebody, uh, or, or have the, the coaching staff or whatever in place to really, uh, you know, get the players buy-in, which I guess you, you expect the players to buy in regardless, but you also need to appoint somebody that's going to help make that happen. I just don't think they ever really did that. I think Chris Coleman did his best, but I, you saw, and, and again, not to like spoiler alert season two, 
but you really in season two you saw the opposite of like a team that was bought in and a team that really like like and and they mentioned in season two uh some of the players that were still there like like they mentioned like the front office and the coaching staff being the major problem the year before season two recap maybe coming soon but i guess it's a conversation for a distant yeah we'll give it a few weeks but yeah um um, and i will say like the first scene of season two in my opinion is one of the best scenes in the entire series because it's him in front of the whiteboard one of the new owners talking about how financially like inept the last ownership group was and how bad things really got and like that's when you start seeing the business side of it and like okay, we are a, a, t- a sports team. We need to perform for our fans, but we also need to manage our money properly. Like we're also a business that still needs to manage its money. And like, it's just the, the, the night and day difference of that from season one to season two is super interesting. Exactly. And also they explore less, I feel like less like league games and more kind of those like other like tournaments that the team's in. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. I f- I feel like they – so if you if that seems interesting, definitely check out season two. But to finish up, uh, season one, I think it was great. If you haven't seen it, uh, hopefully this, uh, this got you excited to go watch it. Um, and uh, once again, we'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, if you have anything to say, anything that anything you agree to add or disagree with that. to what we talked about. We didn't get really too much in the nitty-gritty in terms of specific players, specific games, you know, things like that. I guess I guess one thing I did want to mention is they had a road game. Which one was it? I think it was against Middlesbrough. They were on the road. No, it wasn't Middlesbrough. Uh, it was Bristol City where they were on the road and they were down 3-0 and they came back to draw it at the end and you have the guy in his house. That was the same episode where the camera guy got, got punched or whatever. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have the guy in his house just listening to his radio, just going crazy with his son. Like, that was so cool. And it's like, God, those little moments just kept you invested. In, in an otherwise just you know, very depressing season to to witness. That's interesting. That was one of the scenes that stood out for me as well, as far as just like, and yeah, I did think it was so funny that like his son, like clearly didn't really know what was going on, but like <laughs> yeah. was willing to like fake it because like. He was excited because kind of, his dad was excited. Like Exactly. And that was like so fun to watch. And like you said, it just kind of, it, it kept you like invested in what was just like a terrible year for them. And, but yeah, overall, Great season. We loved it. And yeah, that's, uh, that's all I got, Jeremy. Anything anything else to close? I really enjoyed it for the most part as well. Um, just be ready to be frustrated while you're watching it, to be honest, if you haven't yet. Then, uh, yeah, go right into season two because season two is really good too. Yes. Like we said, that is on Netflix. If you're